Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the executive director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and I am so pleased to have Andrew Grosso with us this week to discuss the Twitter whistleblowers revelations and what this might mean for Silicon Valley tech companies, as well as other high profile businesses. Andrew is the founder and principal attorney at Andrew Grosso and Associates. He is former assistant U.S. attorney and a graduate of the law school of the University of Notre Dame. And he holds a master's of science degrees in both physics and computer science from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Andrew's practice includes the prosecution of whistleblower or what we call KETAM cases, high-tech commercial litigation, and a range of cybersecurity and cyber litigation. Andrew, welcome. Thank you for making time on short notice to join us to discuss the Twitter whistleblower case. I think we should start off with some basics to help guide our listeners into the depths of this. So let's begin by asking you to tell us what is a whistleblower and what is the legal framework around such actions? Well, the definition of a whistleblower is something you think everybody has some type of an understanding. It is someone who takes information that is not confidential, it's within a company, it's within uh, some kind of an entity that is dealing with other people, dealing with the public, and he takes it and he either discloses it publicly or he gives it to someone who's affected by it or he gives it to the government or law enforcement. That is the classic definition of a whistleblower. But you've asked me more than that. You've asked me, what is the legal framework around such conduct? And that's not so easy to explain. We use the term whistleblower in the legal sense, but the legal sense has multiple subcategories of whistleblowing and whistleblower laws, whistleblower protections, whistleblower acts. Let me go through some of them for you. You mentioned that I do KETAM cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, KETAM is uh, an old Latin phrase. It's short for KETAM Domino Rege, he who goes on behalf of the king. And what that means is somebody, say you, say me, brings a lawsuit in the name of usually the United States, but it could be a m- number of states that we have in this country that also have similar whistleblower laws. And you can bring a lawsuit on behalf of the United States against someone who has been defrauding the United States. Hmm, Uh, And this this is a complicated statute. I'll go into a little bit more later. But you actually bring a lawsuit. And it's filed under seal so the defendant doesn't know about it. That's to not protect the whistleblower. You might think that's the reason why it's filed under seal, but it's actually to protect the government's investigation. We've heard a lot about uh, in recent weeks uh, this 
a search warrant uh, down in Mar-a-Lago and should it be unsealed, should it be sealed, should it be redacted? And the reason for that discussion is to protect the government's investigation. Similarly, these suits are brought in court and sealed by statute and then subsequently resealed by the court to protect the government's investigation. Another type of whistleblower action is an administrative complaint, which is what we're talking about with these uh, Silicon Valley uh, matters now. They are not lawsuits. They are administrative complaints. You fill out a, a form and you attach your evidence and sometimes you attach your analysis done by yourself or a lawyer. You file it with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, the IRS, the uh, Federal Commodities uh, Agency, and uh, a number of other federal and state uh, agencies have these kinds of laws. And they will investigate. And if they deem that it's worthwhile and they pursue it, uh, you then get a share of, of what they collect. Uh, there's no right of participation in the investigation or the judicial or administrative action like there is in a, in a key TAM case, but there are rewards and there are protections. And that's the third category. Whistleblowers are protected by federal and many state laws. And if you are punished because you are a whistleblower and you fall under one of these categories of protections, then you may have a right of action to bring a lawsuit or bring an administrative complaint. Um, so that is what we're talking about when we talk about whistleblowing and uh, when we talk about uh, the legal regimes that are involved. Well. That's very interesting. So you said the the Twitter case, according to the whistleblowers, Twitter's former chief security officer, Peter Zatko, sent hundreds of pages of internal documents from Twitter to DOJ, the FTC and SEC, detailing failures in Twitter's security program and internal controls. So that was one of these administrative actions that you put as the second category, right? Correct. Okay. So he's a respected hacker and he's known in cybersecurity circles as Mudge, who's also worked with respected organizations like DARPA and Google. Twitter has noted that he was fired in January of this year for, quote, ineffective leadership and poor performance, end quote, which sort of sounds like the usual party line. But following the lead of Facebook whistleblower Francis Hagen, Mr. Zadko, went to the organization Whistleblower Aid, a nonprofit legal group, and got them to represent him. So he didn't give them directly. I think he went to Whistleblower Aid and got them to help him and give them to these federal agencies. What are the implications of that, Andrew? Was that a smart move? And if so, why? Well, to me, that's an ambiguous question. And the reason is, are you asking me, is the firing of Mudge by Twitter a smart move? Or is Mudge blowing the whistle on Twitter a no, smart move? that he didn't hand these documents directly to the DOJ, FTC, and SEC. He went to Whistleblower Aid, this nonprofit legal group, and got them to represent him. And it's my understanding that they helped, they, they took them to the government agencies. Uh, I think that's a very smart idea. And the reason is they have lawyers 
They are familiar with the whistleblower provisions of both federal and state law. They're familiar with other statutes, and that's another thing I'll get into in a moment. They can walk the whistleblower through the process without, hopefully, making a mistake. This is not a simple area of law. There are scores, literally almost 100, federal whistleblower provisions or statutes or programs out there. Really? Almost 100 at the federal level? Yes. Wow. All, lots of, of agencies that you've never even heard of have their own. I mean, National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration has a whistleblower program. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody hears about health care fraud with the Medicare, Medicaid programs under the False Claims Act. A Health and Human Service Office of Civil Rights has their own whistleblower program. It's not nearly as big. It's not as well known. It's there. So each one has their own requirements for entry. Each one has their own requirements for getting protected in case somebody retaliates against you. Bottom line, to answer your question, don't do this on your own. And he was very, very smart to go and get an entity that's experienced to represent him and walk him through the process. So he would still be be the whistleblower? He's still the whistleblower. Okay. And so just a few days ago, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler released a statement that the commission, meaning the SEC, voted to adopt amendments to rules governing the SEC's whistleblower program. And he said these amendments will help eligible whistleblowers receive appropriate awards for reporting potential violations of the law to the commission. The First Amendment expands the circumstances in which a whistleblower who assisted in a related action can receive an award from the commission for that related action rather than from the other agency's whistleblower program. And the Second Amendment only allows the commission to increase an award, not decrease it. So it gives some certainty to whistleblowers. Are these amendments important in this case? They're important amendments, but I doubt if they're significant here. I would be very surprised if the size of any award affected Mr. Zatko's or Mudge, whatever we wish to call him today, uh, his decision to blow the whistle. With that being said, the value of these amendments, they are going to serve to encourage whistleblowers to come forward. First of all, uh, there was uh, an amendment two years ago that uh, effectively capped. Uh, Many awards allowed the SEC to lower awards, uh, but not raise them. This goes in the other direction. Um, Now the SEC can can raise whistleblower awards and cannot consider uh, certain information to reduce an award. So this is going to encourage more whistleblowing. Second uh, is, as I mentioned, there are more than one whistleblower program out there. There's scores of them. And suppose you bring your information to multiple agencies. Like he did, to the DOJ, FTC, and SEC. Right. Or you give it to the SEC, and the SEC distributes it to other agencies. Mm -hmm. Suppose another agency gets the recovery, and the SEC doesn't, and you gave your information only to the SEC. Or you gave your information to two agencies. Both of them get a recovery, 
Um, taken together, it's a lot of money. Taken separately, it may not be so much money. Now the SEC can look around and say, okay, based upon all the recoveries, us, somebody else, or both of us, we're going to decide how much to give you. And that's important because agency, you know, A may be the SEC that you went to, agency B may have a program, but it's a very small recovery, say 10% or a flat $1,000, which actually is what Health and Human Services had for quite a while. The SEC can say, okay, if you waive your right to get the other agency's recovery, we're going to pay you out of our funds, and we're going to give you an amount that we would have given you if all of the recovery was ours. Uh, so that's very important because you, you don't want the government playing a shell game with you. You know, oh, really, it was the other agency that, that got the recovery. You only filed with us, so we're not going to give you anything. Uh, so that gives a, a certain comfort level to a relator. But if he gave I, it... By, by the way, I use the term relator. Let me, let me say something. Under the False Claims Act, the whistleblower is known as a relator. That's not true for other, agent, uh, other programs. So I really should have used the term whistleblower. Why not? A relator is somebody who, who acts on behalf of the United States in a lawsuit. That, that falls under the False Claims Act. These administrative programs, you're not taking the action. The agencies are. You're just giving the agencies information so they can proceed. But for general purposes of conversation, it's a whistleblower. Yes. Okay. So he reported this to three, DOJ, FTC, and SEC. So is he entitled to receive from all three or only the SEC? Well, that's up. Uh, actually, it's up to him. If he wants to get a share of each, then each agency is going to look at what they recovered. They're going to look at their own procedures, determine how much the whistleblower is entitled to. Either it can be a flat, uh, a rate determined by regulation or statute. It can be discretionary up to some uh, maximum amount. And he can collect from all three, but only from the proceeds that each one received. Or he can say, no, the SEC has a better program. I'm going to forego my rights to to receive anything from the other two, and I want the SEC to reward me. So it's going to be up to him. Wouldn't the FCC have to give him the better program anyway? And the award anyway, the better program awards, and if they have it, you said... Okay. Let us say the SEC gets um, $100, and DOJ gets $100, and the FTC gets $100. But say, for the sake of argument, the SEC can give... 30% of that, DOJ can only give 20% of that, FTC can only give 10%. So if he uh, collects from each, he's going to get $30 from SEC, $20 from DOJ, $10 from FTC for $60. Mm -hmm. Or he can say, I'm foregoing my rights to anything from DOJ and the FTC. I want everything from the SEC as if the SEC collected all the money. He's going to get 30% of $300, which is $90. He's going to do better. Oh, okay. That's very interesting because I, I just was emptied up to ask you about the amount of money. I mean, Ms. Hagen and Mr. Zatko have put their careers on the line by taking these brave actions. Is there enough money likely to come to them that the risk is worth it? Uh, as I said, I don't think that's why they did it. 
both of them were probably well compensated where they were. There was no reason uh, for them to put their careers on the line. And when I say putting their careers on the line, I don't mean just employment with Twitter or Facebook or anybody else. Uh, Whistleblowers will go through a lot of heartache. They will run the risk of being blackballed in the industry. Right. Uh, I've had clients who have been very worried about that and have not gone forward with their their cases for that very reason. I've advised them this may happen to you, and they backed off. Others are very uh, into it for the money, but that's not the only reason. There are people who believe firmly that something is wrong and needs to be corrected. And many of them have either tried to correct it within their own companies and have failed. Many of them have seen what has happened to other people when they've tried to correct something and they know it's not going to work. And many have done something or seen somebody else do something and been retaliated against and they're not going to run the risk again. So there are lots of reasons. In these cases, I think these people did it because they saw something that was wrong. They could not correct it internally, and they decided to go forward. So Stephen Levy from Wired had an article in his plain text a few days ago. And he, uh, let me just read this. It's talking about Peter Zatko. He said, he was fired last January after clashes with the current CEO, Parar Agrawal. Zatko believed that Twitter's management wasn't taking steps to fix its security problems and that Agrawal was lying about those shortcomings to the board of directors, shareholders, and regulators. So he gets fired and they say, oh, it's poor performance. And you know he gets pushed out the door, which seems like pretty risky strategy for the company to take. But it's one that that you know, when you look at companies doing that kind of stuff, I'm thinking that after this case and Ms. Hagen from Facebook, they should think about that strategy a little bit. Companies are like people. They protect themselves. They act in their own interest. And they think they can get away with things. It takes some high-profile matters in order to get their attention so that they do things the right way. I'm going to bring you back to the 1980s and 90s. In the 1980s, fraud in the defense procurement industry was a target of the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. And they, not completely, but significantly brought them to heel. Every defense procurement, uh, every defense contractor, has a compliance office. And now the question is, how good are they? How good is the program? Put that aside for the moment. They are there. They have a job to do, and the government looks at them and says, how are you doing your job, and are you accomplishing your purpose? In the 1990s, it was healthcare. Healthcare became very, very big on the government's radar. And the same thing happened. Well, guess what? We're entering a new era, and it's going to be the cyber firms and social media. 
These companies that have so much of our private data uh, that they can slice and dice and sell, uh, they can track us, they can profile us. Now we're going to have the same thing here. So these companies need to take a look around and maybe a few of these big cases need to really strike home. And you're going to see these companies do the same thing that the defense industry and the healthcare companies did decades ago. They're going to have compliance programs. They're going to have to put their compliance officers into the C-suite. And they're going to have to let these people do their jobs. Well, they may have to do a little more than that. I mean, if we take a look at Twitter and Facebook, I've been concerned for a long time that too many Silicon Valley companies have poor governance. They start up, they get their funding rounds, they grow fast, they have valuations in the billions before they turn a profit. And it's the Wild West. There are good corporate practices in some of the front runners in Silicon Valley, such as Microsoft, Oracle, Google, Amazon. They're grownups and they have good corporate governance practices. But many of the others have not given governance the attention it deserves. They just, yes, they have a board because they have to have a board, but you know, they, they run fast and loose and really don't pay attention to governance. So I agree with you that I think that the consequences of Twitter and Facebook may end up igniting something here. I think that when we look at those companies and the regulations we have in the states, you know, there's 20 some states require reasonable cybersecurity practices to protect personally identifiable information. The FTC could conclude that Twitter engaged in unfair trade practices by not protecting its users' data. And Twitter's a public company. So now they've got the new, you know, the SEC regulatory machine on it. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right that this could very easily spawn a flurry of whistleblower activity or maybe even anonymous activity of people calling in tips and telling people, telling regulators what's going on inside their company. Remember when Software Business Alliance started that campaign telling employees to let them know if their company wasn't buying separate Microsoft licenses? It completely changed the software industry. I mean, everyone said, oh, okay, we we have to have one license per each machine. Mm -hmm. So the privacy and cybersecurity may really be a hammer and ignite whistleblower action. You may be very busy, Andrew, in the next couple of years. (laughs) Well, let let me go back to the beginning of, of your comment. I won't call it a question. You mentioned something about governance. Mm-hmm. And you said these these Silicon Valley companies don't have good governance. Many of them don't. Are you surprised? Think of who's starting these companies. These are, in many instances, they're college dropouts. Why? Because they see a better way. <laughs> these are people who are entrepreneurs. They are people who break, the, I won't even say bend the rules. They break the rules. They're inventing something new. Governance is the least important thing on their minds. And frankly, there is a massive disconnect between the government bureaucracy and regulatory community and the way techies and entrepreneurs think. 
I was counsel to MIT in their internal investigation of what happened during the prosecution of Aaron Schwartz. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that the one thing that struck me was the disconnect between the way the government prosecutors and investigators and regulators thought about what Mr. Schwartz was doing and what I believe, although I don't know for a fact, what I believe Mr. Schwartz thought he was doing. Mr. Schwartz, uh, prior to the incident uh, where he was prosecuted and ultimately, unfortunately, committed suicide, he was investigated in two other matters. One had to do with PACER. That's the public access, the court electronic records that that the court system operates. They uh, had a holiday, so to speak. Anybody could download as many records, uh, court docket records as they wanted. And he and somebody else um, wrote uh, some algorithms to do this for them. And they downloaded massive numbers of files. Well, this was well beyond what Pacer expected. And so there was an FBI investigation. But there was no law broken. They just took what was allowed them and they pushed it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens here. Techies entrepreneurs, they push the boundaries. And sometimes they don't know where those boundaries are beyond what the law will tolerate. Wow. Uh, and, and I think that that's what you're seeing uh, in this, in the current uh, environment between um, software and uh, social media companies and the regulatory uh, agencies. I think it really is more a Silicon Valley phenomenon. I mean, Bill Gates got dropped out of college and he founded Microsoft and Microsoft has always had pretty good governance. It, I think it's more a Silicon Valley, a really, a, we're special. We've got this VC funding. We've got this money. We've been invented something cool and we can just do what we want. We've got this driverless car. Let's just go put it on the road and see if it works. And so they're always out there kind of asking for forgiveness, begging for forgiveness instead of asking permission. But I don't see that happening in Boston. I don't see that happening in Austin. I don't see that happening in other major tech centers in the country, even in D.C. I see it more as a Silicon Valley phenomenon that people it's a culture that's been developed out there. And I think it's dangerous. I mean, Uber is a good example. And Uber did not have good governance in place and it is paid a price and it still is. But back to the whistleblower thing. I mean, if you've got internal practices where with data now being, if people say it's a new oil, so the uses of it can be extraordinarily tempting and that's going to continue. So if people see this and they're saying, hey, we shouldn't be doing this or let's take it like, the Twitter example that Stephen Levy talked about, you've got senior management that are troglodytes and don't want to do this stuff or spend money on privacy or cybersecurity, and people leave. I think the whole governance thing with tech companies, but especially in Silicon Valley, has to be addressed. And this may start pushing that envelope because you've hit two companies, big ones out there, Twitter and Facebook. And these are big whistleblower actions. Let me ask you a question. If somebody's leaving a company 
And then they're negotiating a severance package or a package to leave. And of course, the company always wants to say, this is all confidential and you can never say anything about us. Can a company through a contract clause like that require someone to be silent on illegal behavior? That's a loaded question. And the reason it's loaded is the answer depends on the facts. Obviously, you cannot solicit somebody to commit a crime. And if the circumstances are such that you are preventing them from disclosing uh, evidence to the government under circumstances where such refusal to disclose or hiding information is a crime, then the answer is clearly no. If you're uh, given a subpoena, you need to comply with it regardless of the contract. There are lots of ways to handle uh, the situation that you are talking about without going so far as to prohibit uh, an individual from going to the government and disclosing what they know. One is by saying you can't do that except if you are asked by an agency or uh, given a subpoena uh, or deposed. Uh, So clearly you have to comply with a lawful order. Another way uh, is, yes, you can talk to the government, but since you were our employee, we are effectively an entity that is being uh, uh, interviewed through you. Therefore, you have to allow us to have our lawyer present. Uh, Now, all of these things are subject to dispute before a court, how they are enforced, but these are tools that companies use in order to accomplish what it is you're trying to frame with your question. Um, Can you stop an employee from actually disclosing anything? Not 100%. Can you discourage it? Can you control it to some extent? Yes. Well, this has really been a fascinating discussion, but we're out of time. Let me ask you in closing, what advice you may want to offer to potential whistleblowers? And what advice do you have for companies who want to be better prepared for these whistleblower type situations? Do you have some last minute thoughts? Yeah, I do. First of all, for the individual, for the potential whistleblower, get a lawyer. And I'll give you some examples. One, you want to put yourself into the correct program with the correct requirements satisfied. For example, in the Sarbanes-Oxley, the retaliation provision, you have 180 days to, in writing, notify the Department of Labor. Otherwise, the statute of limitations is run. You have similar provisions for state retaliation programs, for SEC, for the False Claims Act. You need somebody who understands these. Secondly, you need to keep yourself out of trouble. There's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which prohibits you from exceeding authorization if you're going for for data files on a computer. Uh, The Electronic Communication Privacy Act, which has one party and two party states that have similar laws. So you don't know whether you're violating committing a felony if you um, take uh, if you record a conversation, you need to talk to a lawyer about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, accessing stored uh, electronic communications, emails, voicemails, uh, those have specific statutes that can criminalize such conduct if you're not careful. There are others. Now, from the company's point of view, 
you need a compliance program. You need a compliance officer. Even if you make a mistake, even if you've got a renegade manager who goes off and does something he should not have done, thinking he's advancing the interest of the company as well as himself, if you've got a good compliance program, you can show the government, gee, we tried. The penalties are going to be a lot more limited. And you may be able to catch the problem early and avoid it entirely. Um, So those are the closing thoughts that I have. We are entering a new age. What we've had before with other industries, we are seeing that develop now in these. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot more of privacy and cybersecurity whistleblower action because we know companies haven't been paying the attention they should have been paying and their internal teams are the ones that know it. And the legal front on privacy and cybersecurity is ramping up faster from across the pond in the EU and in the US than I think most companies can keep pace with, but their people internally are going to be aware of what's going on. So Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and for stepping us through uh, whistleblower laws and situations. We really appreciate it, Andrew. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.